Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon, I'm Ammon Swenson. Last month, representatives from the United States and China met in Anchorage for the first face-to-face meeting between the two countries since President Biden took office. In order to better understand that meeting, let's listen to a discussion from the Alaska World Affairs Council. This event was recorded via video chat on March 22nd. Alaska World Affairs President Lisa Falsko speaks first. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to our program today on Understanding the U.S.-China Summit featuring Mark Manier. It has been quite the week this last week here in Anchorage, Alaska. Right now, it is 14 degrees with clear blue skies in downtown Anchorage. It has been an, a phenomenal week, and we are so glad that Mark decided to come to our town this week where the snow has been falling and the sky is blue, and I hope the air and the water is fresh wherever you are from around the world joining us today. We are going to have an extensive Q&A period at the end, and you, we're trying this out where we can see everyone so that we can have questions directly from you during the q and I'll be moderating the Q&A, so simply let me know you want to ask a question, and then you unmute your microphone to ask that. So to let me know, you can raise your hand actually or virtually, or send me a note in the chat feature, and I'll call on you and you can ask a question directly of Mark at the end. If you are new to an Alaska World Affairs Council program, the World Affairs Council, Alaska World Affairs Council is part of 90 councils around the United States. And we welcome everyone listening today to join the conversation and join us at the end during the Q&A. Super special thank you to all of our members and supporters and partners who make programs like this happen today. And it's, we wouldn't be able to do what we do without you. So thank you for supporting us. And thank you to the Juno World Affairs Council, our forever partner this year during the pandemic. We have a special person who will be introducing our speaker today. Super excited about what is possible with virtual programs. We've never done this before, but we can bring in from our national office. Like I said, we're one of 90 councils around the United States. And our headquarters is in Washington, D.C., And we have the president and CEO of our National World Affairs Council of America, Bill Clifford, who's going to be introducing our speaker. And you might know him in this role, but you might not know that before leading the World Affairs Council of America, Bill served as the Asia Bureau Chief for the pioneering multimedia venture CBS Market Watch, where he launched and directed new bureaus in Japan and Hong Kong. He got his start in broadcast news with Asia Business News TV, and was a senior correspondent in Tokyo for CNBC. Bill is the one who connected us with Mark Manier, and it is such a privilege to have Bill join us here today at the Alaska World Affairs Council program to introduce our speaker. Bill, over to you. Thank you so much, Lisa, and good afternoon, everybody. When my good friend Mark Manier last week reached out to me to ask if I knew anybody in Alaska who he could connect with when he would come to your state to cover the high-level talks between U.S. and China last week. I said none other than Lisa Falsco and the World Affairs and the Alaska World Affairs Council would be great for you to engage with. So here we are. It's a true pleasure. Mark Manier is U.S. correspondent based in D.C. for the South China Morning Post, an extremely influential newspaper in Hong Kong uh, that covers global news. Previously, he worked for two decades or so, probably or so, because I've known him since he was a young man, 
um, for the Wall Street Journal in China and for the Los Angeles Times in India, China, and Japan. He's covered the Chinese economy, China, and India's explosive rise and conflicts from Afghanistan to Pakistan to Iraq and many other hotspots and wherever the top global stories are, Mark will be there with his phone, his computer, and a whole network of contacts. Um, I can vouch personally that he has indeed, because I've checked with my sources, he has camped out under Saddam Hussein's bridges and slept in abandoned East Timor nunneries. But I know more about his camping on Japanese tatami mats and taking spas at Japanese onsen and so forth. Mark, you're a terrific friend. It's great of you to engage with the Alaska World Affairs Council. And I can't think of anybody to bring more insight and enlightenment on US-China issues and the Quad Summit recently that uh, President Biden organized uh, to talk about Asian issues. Mark Manier, over to you. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you, Bill. I also want to apologize. This was originally scheduled for Friday when we thought that there would only be one day of, uh, of meetings between US and China. The news gods are a, uh, a, a jealous mistress and unpredictable. And so uh, we had to reschedule. These few days have allowed me to basically to experience the, the warmth of Alaska. It's, people have been incredibly nice as I have tried to get plugged in. And the last time I was here was for the trial of the Exxon Valdez. So it's been a while. <laughs> so let me just briefly outline what I, I wanted to do is a, a quick look at what has happened to U.S.-China relations over the past couple of, of decades, then a little bit on what's happening, what sort of the dynamics were in the meeting uh, here in Anchorage. And then finally, a couple of observations about something that's happened within the last couple of hours that's going to add a banner to the works with the imposition of sanctions by a large array of nations against China. So I guess in many ways, the seminal event, one of the seminal events was China's accession into the WTO in 2001, as most of you know who followed international affairs and, and China. And this led to the what Greg Wolf has dubbed the Dragon Decade. Uh, in Alaska's case, this led to exports from Alaska going from about 100 million to somewhere between 12 and 14 fold of that in very short order. We then had the global financial crisis. China came out very well. They pumped an enormous amount of funding into the Chinese and by extension, the global economy. And this also led to kind of the, the rise of a certain arrogance out of Beijing, a feeling that their system was much better equipped, that these were um, the sort of outgrowth of negative sides of capitalism that had led to this. And um, around this time, we also started to see the erosion of a belief by the West in a narrative that they had uh, basically held to, which was that with the WTO, as we'd seen with Japan and with the uh, Taiwan and South Korea and others, that over time, with the, with the connection to the global economy, that China would become much more like most other market economies, that in a sense, you'd get, put Mickey Mouse under the door and then middle class values would happen, greater democracy, greater political liberalization. 
And all the while you were seeing sort of in that 2010 to 2016 period, the rise of the rich-poor gap, huge increase in anti-globalization, a dislocation, the labor markets got um, out of increasingly disjointed with those who had had a good middle-class income. And then in many ways, these were factors that led to the election of President Donald Trump. That led to four years. Of, he immediately pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Paris Accord, and the adoption of America First principles, much more personality-driven foreign policy and economic policy, quite mercurial when it came to China. Early on, he was quite enamored of Xi Jinping. Uh, later, we saw a rapid deterioration into trade wars, name-calling, and uh, the rise of suspicion on a huge number of areas, and capped by the phase one trade agreement that in many ways was geared toward the re-election of Trump with his key constituents. Okay, so that brings us in many ways to this meeting that we saw last week. The dynamics of this are, in my mind, that China has wanted this meeting more than the U.S., There are a couple of reasons for that. Beijing has reasoned that it wants to start engaging the Biden administration before it can set its China policy and thereby influence it a bit more. And it's also very, very well aware of the Biden strategy to try to amass allies and encircle, to some extent, Beijing. And so by Beijing's logic is by trying to engage the U.S. early, it will sort of avoid some of the rising pressure that that has. And a third aspect of Beijing's uh, sort of desire for an early meeting of the minds, if you will, was is that it still does view the U.S. as very, very key for its own stability and the influence that the U.S. has not only in East Asia, but in, in Europe. The U.S., on the other hand, with the Biden administration, has been happier to wait. Their game plan has been to review the Trump policies, not throw them out wholesale, and in many ways use the uh, tough leverage that Trump amassed and see what is in the interest, in their mind, of the U.S. consumer, not have some sort of wholesale policies toward China, but try to bring some nuance into it, and then have more time to corral allies. So they've been happy to hold off a bit. At the same time, both countries recognize that you can't wait forever. Together, they, as we well know, amount to 40% of the global economy. Much of Biden's agenda moving forward indirectly depends on China, whether it's economic improvement in the U.S. and the environment. At the same time, both sides have come into this meeting hemmed in. China, after you know, quite mercurial years of Trump, cannot afford to look weak with its own, in that, in their case, left wing, with the, with the conservatives in, in China, the domestic constituency. And, um, and Biden cannot afford to look weak either with Republicans or his own progressives on a vast array of issues involving China from economics to human rights. So then why Alaska? Of course, it's the best state in the, in the country and <laughs> all of that. <laughs> um, but it's funny because I went out before, uh, I had a little time before the meeting started and I went to Cars Supermarket and, and a bunch of other places and just 
talk to uh, what the Chinese called the Lao Baixing, the average man on the street, about what they thought about the meeting. And a lot of it was, say what? What meeting? And then, <laughs> why Alaska? <laughs> this is from Anchorage uh, locals. And um, so I think there were a, a few key issues at play. One is for, given that the dynamics of it were that the Chinese wanted this a little more than the U.S., it's on U.S. territory. So the Biden administration was making a point with that. It's far from either capital, which in many ways, again, with all due respect to Alaska, signaled that we're not going to give this the sort of prestige that you would have with something close to uh, the recognition that comes with state dinners or these sorts of things. And finally, if you look at the uh, just the geography, right, uh, Blinken and Sullivan, so Secretary of State and the head of the National Security Agency were council were um, were in Seoul. <laughs> That's about 45 minutes from Beijing, and yet they made the Chinese fly all the way <laughs> over to Alaska <laughs> overnight and uh, with great inconvenience so that they could meet them here. So this were sort of the some of the optics of what we saw. Also, we had weeks, days and weeks of signaling coming into this thing um, where both sides were playing it out in the press. Uh, some of the issues involved, the Chinese continued to say that this was these were the beginning of strategic talks. And the Biden administration officials would say there's nothing strategic about this. This is a one off. There were rumblings coming up from the Chinese, either state media or officials, saying that this meeting would deal with tariffs. And the U.S. side said, no tariffs. There's no tariffs involved. We're not going to talk tariffs. And then there was a bit of a, some differences over Australia, uh, which has been caught in the ringer by Beijing, both on the economic and foreign policy side, where Australia uh, indicated that the U.S. would defend its interests Kurt Campbell on the National Security Council gave an op-ed in the Sydney Morning Herald saying, we will defend you. China said, "This you're, a, you're not going to be defended by the U.S. So there were a number of these issues that were going back and forth. We get to the meeting, and not surprisingly, given all of the luster in, in, the, uh, uh, in the press leading up to this, the format originally had been one to two minutes each speaking before they went into the meetings. Uh, you all know sort of what happened. Things went off the rail really quickly. Blinken went a bit long and quite, uh, I don't want to say accusatory, but laid out all of the issues, the, the real tough issues that are between the, the two countries, whether Xinjiang and Taiwan, and laid this all out. Yang Jiechi, the senior diplomat on the Chinese side, then came back with a 17-minute his version of things about how the U.S. had nothing to brag about, its own human rights were abysmal, that it was killing African-Americans, the Black Lives Matter issue, uh, that it does not speak for the global community, uh, on and on. There was a little quip at the end, which you probably heard, where Yang Jiechi said, did you get all that to the translator? Uh, this will really test your capabilities. And then Blinken Quipped back that the translator deserved a raise. So we have then a culture gap on a couple of counts above and beyond everything. The Chinese tend to like, when they come into these negotiations, tend to like looking at things from the standpoint of the concept. So, and, and the increasingly frustrated 
uh, Americans tend to want specifics, concrete areas where they're going to see improvement. So, for example, if you look at some of the most contentious issues involving, say, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, mostly those two, the Chinese want to come from a position of you recognize that we have sovereignty, and then we can talk about some of the details. The Americans come in, these are egregious human rights. We want concrete measures where you are going to address these and fix these and uh, allow the global community to come in and view things on the ground. And so there's a very different approach to these to start with. And then <laughs> the, the more amusing, if you will, cultural issues that came out of this meeting, the biggest thing that the most egregious issue and there were many average Chinese was the fact that there was no dinner. As someone with a Chinese wife, if you don't get your dinner <laughs> on time and a good a good feed, uh, you're in trouble. And then a lot of this no way to treat guests. And so this was, you know, no matter in, in Asia, everywhere face is important, but particularly in Asia, the, the ceremony is extremely important. And so these were, I think, consciously transgressed by the Biden administration. They, they know what they're doing. Most of them have been diplomats for a long time on the foreign policy side. They knew exactly what they were doing. Probably perhaps the prospect, what they faced in the, among Republicans sitting down to dinner, they probably wanted to avoid that. So where do we stand? I would say before this morning, I was of the conclusion that they had both aired their laundry, their differences, made their stance, and that you saw very quickly after they, uh, this, ex this pre-meeting explosion, both sides really worked to rein it in pretty quickly. A senior official within probably an hour of that made a big point of how well the meetings were going behind closed doors, that they had quite a bit in common, that it was a frank exchange of views, but both sides laid out their issues. And then if you watch the Chinese state-controlled press the next day, even the Global Times, which is, uh, you know, often a bit uh, hysterical, was all had the tone of we can work together. And this obviously came right out of the propaganda office. But what we've seen this morning uh, is, uh, I don't know if you caught it, but the U.S., the U.K., Canada, and the European Union have announced a unified common set of sanctions against four individuals operating in Xinjiang and one uh, entity, at which point China immediately slapped back uh, with their own sanctions against 10 European individuals and four entities. This, we are in for some, you know, rough sledding for a while, because th that provides little chance that there's going to be uh, an improvement in the atmosphere that will allow for a slow circling and recalibration and a uh, looking at areas where they the two sides can can look, uh, work together okay sorry to go on and on there but that um that's kind of at least in my mind some of the issues that we're grappling with so onward and upward um it would love some questions would love uh, any thoughts Mark, that is so funny. Can we quote you that we're in for some rough sledding? Do you like the sledding? <laughs> I love I love that. That is such a visual that we can totally come on board with. Okay. Because I grew up in Hawaii, I should have said surfing, but at any rate, yeah. 
Okay. Well, so like I said, we're going to let you guys take questions directly to our speaker. This is bringing virtual to life. So please do turn on your video so we can see your wonderful faces and let me know by your actual hand or a virtual hand or send me a chat if you want to ask a question. I see Dr. Paul Dunscombe has his virtual hand up. So we'll start with you. Just simply unmute, ask your question, and then kindly press mute when you're finished. Dr. Dunscombe. And thanks very much, uh, Lisa. And thanks very much, Mark, for uh, talking to us today. So uh, in the chat function, I noted that since, and you noted also, since 2008 and the response to the Great Recession, that really seemed to give important kind of outside validation uh, to China's socialist market economy. But even so, you know, they had been sort of pushing the notion of peaceful rise. They had been pushing the notion of the three represents you know, the CCP is a big tent, uh, a much more kind of soft power focus. And yet with Xi Jinping, he seems to have opted much more for a hard power way of proceeding. And I'm guessing what's the percentage for Xi Jinping in the hard power approach versus the soft power approach? Paul, as I'm sure you know, the, the whole uh, arc of, of soft power in China is a very interesting uh, issue. And um, sort of very briefly, uh, when Zhou Nai came up with the concept, China was very wary of this, seeing it as a way that the imperialists were trying to hold it down. Uh, but then they, uh, as they have with so many other areas, realized that, wait, we can uh, try to remake this in our own interest. And so they have redefined soft power as things that would, would in most by traditional definitions, not apply. And this includes the Belt and Road Initiative. It includes aid where, you know, you are heavily dependent on Beijing, arguably, and it includes a lot of this that would be considered hard power. In the process, they also put about 30, the estimates vary, but some 30 billion into the soft power initiative, which included the Confucius Institutes, which included uh, the media. And it also arguably included the buying in for a while of uh, assets in Hollywood to try to get more into films, doing joint productions, that sort of thing. So it's a good question. I When I ask around, it doesn't, you know, in any government, bureaucratic momentum being what it is, programs continue to, to go on and on and on. So it doesn't seem like they've given up on the concept, but they, I think a couple of things are going on. One, there's probably a bit of a conclusion that we can't win, <laughs> you know, um, because it just, they try, they try to do it their way. Uh, it doesn't really, it backfires. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's not... I don't think there's an understanding at some core level that you got to walk the walk and not just say stuff in by the propaganda ministry. And the second very, very important thing, I think, is the, is the character of Xi Jinping himself. And this is a very, very defining issue. And so, you know, I don't see them, I think, in many ways, I don't. They've tried. They continue to try. You saw the sort of very ham-handed way they did um, mask. Uh, uh, diplomacy in Europe in the early days. They've also there's been they've they've worked on vaccine diplomacy, especially in places like the Philippines and Pakistan. And some of the reporting I've seen out of there, people will grab an, different kinds of vaccines if ha if they have the choice. Uh, so I think basically they're much more inclined to go with with a bit of muscle and uh, obligation, which is also why. This 
approach by the Biden administration is so uh, daunting and and a bit scary for them, I think, to to have uh, allies combine forces rather than Trump's strictly one-on-one bilateral approach. Sorry, long answer. Uh, No problem. Thank you. Okay, as we're waiting for more questions, I have one for you. So um, during the opening remarks, which you referred to as diplomatic spats, that you said that the Chinese media was a buzz. And so I'm curious to what the feelings are of the Chinese people on these talks. You referenced a cartoon that went virtual where they depicted the Chinese delegates as rabbits and the Americans as eagles shouting and spitting at each other across the room. Can you elaborate on that? What, what are the local Chinese feeling about this relationship and China with China and the United States? So that that's a that's a quite an interesting choice of memes that that is chosen in that right because in some way eagles eat rabbits <laughs> right um, but um, I think it's it it speaks to this as an emerging nation I think it, no first of all only Xi Jinping can claim to know what the 1.4 billion people in uh, in China feel. So, so a huge caveat that uh, um, these are gross generalizations. But my sense is that there is still a sense, especially if you live in China and you travel outside of, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Shenzhen, uh, boy, the the country has a long way to go. They like to project uh, the shiny big cities and their um, giant uh, increase in the economy. But but they've still, you know, uh, per capita, they're they're still very much a mid-tier power at this point. And so they know, I think at some level, that the rabbit is kind of the underdog. We gave we gave the eagle hell. It is my assessment of that. That uh, we we held our own, both sides. You know, I think the the reaction has been you know good. Biden's guys held their own against China, and uh, the Chinese. It's good. Our boys uh, protected our interests against 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 the uh, big bad Americans. The other part of this is just as a journalist, you know. Covering diplomats can be pretty dry stuff, right? They are trained uh, not to say anything incredibly eloquently. <laughs> boy, to see <laughs> to see this event where they just let it rip and unscripted and kept calling back the press to to give them more uh, to report on uh, just amazing stuff. You can go for decades and not see this sort of drama played out. Okay, I see that Heather has a question. Looks like she's on the phone. So, um, Mark, thank you. Um, I have a comment and a question. Um, my comment was I thought you were a little easy on the U.S. delegation about the dinner. I had no idea they had not put on any kind of dinner, and, and clearly that is, that would be perceived as an insult, whether or not intended. And you would think that they could have organized something that they would clearly have called an informal dinner um, or make sure that it didn't come across as a state dinner and maybe had it up in the eagle's nest so people could see the view. But my question is about Hong Kong. I'm a longtime fan of Hong Kong. I've lived there for a while. I was actually there for the handover, and I've been concerned about it, as many people have ever since. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are, since you were there as a journalist as well, about what its future holds and if there's any way to influence the Chinese administration about its future democratic politically and even economically. Thank you. It's an excellent question, especially given that 
my headquarters is in Hong Kong, so it's something very uh, close to home. Basically, I think the foreign policy under Xi Jinping uh, has has moved away, as we know, from the the roadmap that Deng Xiaoping had had laid out of bide our time, wait, you know, don't don't be confrontational. And I think the Xi Jinping administration calculated that they, I think they saw in part because of the global financial crisis, in part because of perhaps President Obama's personality and approach, that they could go for it, that they could just take advantage of the situation. This was, uh, they had had enough clout at this point, and basically that there was not much that the U.S. would be willing to do. It was worth taking the risk. So we saw that first with the South China Sea and the militarization of, of the islands. And then I think the Hong Kong situation, I think, is a little more a little more complicated because I I think the the distance, not just physical but but metaphorical between uh, Hong Kong and southern China has all but disappeared. And so from their domestic perspective, if you have these unrest going on right on the border of Shenzhen in an area that is now part of, quote unquote, part of China, then you will look weak. Uh, you There were all sorts of domestic ramifications to that. And so at some point, they just decided we are, go- we are willing to take global political hit on this. Uh, back to Paul's issue of, or thoughts about soft power. And uh, we're, we're just, at the end of the day, the ongoing existence and prosperity, if you will, of the Communist Party is paramount. And so therefore, we're just going to have to go in and take them over. What this has shown, I, you know, this is for those who have spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and have been amazed in many ways at the the city's development. This is, you know, a, a, a just a, a real milestone and really, really serious. And I, the, I think what the events that have since then have, have indicated that what there's not much the world can do at the end of the day. There's not much that the world is willing to do. There are sanctions, um, but China knew that probably going into it. There has been some housing by financial companies a little bit, but they also want to maintain access to the massive Chinese market and the uh, massive financial opportunities that exist uh, going forward in China. So China made a bet. They reckoned with the costs and they went ahead. That's my read. Okay. I'm trying to keep track of the time here. It looks like we have a lot of questions. I think we'll get through three of them. And so first I'm going to call on Hajo Aiken, followed by Don Young Chan and then Laura Sturdivant Dean. So first you, Hajo. Hi. Yes. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Mark. Uh, great perspective. Um, you focused on issues where U.S. and China are somewhat at odds. Um, one area where the Biden administration and current Chinese administration seem to be more aligned right now is on action on climate change. Do you see that as an area where finding common ground and then using that to identify pragmatic approaches to other areas where, where something can be done is an option. For example, I'm thinking, my understanding is China does um, significantly, they, they, they seem to want to be abiding by the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which embed 
human rights and and justice issues. And so, so the question is, is that a, would that be a way, focus on climate and, and other topics, a way around some of these obstacles that are difficult to, to resolve in the present configuration? Thanks. Thank you. Good. Good question. So there, in my mind, there are a few dynamics going on with climate change. This has been the much touted area where the two need each other, where it's important that they work together. But you're already seeing, I think, some some sharp elbows even in this area. One is that I think, you know, you saw with Xi Jinping's speech at Davos, where he has, you know, quite wisely from a from a branding or what have you perspective, has said that China is a global leader. We have set targets and we are going to be uh, at a time when the U.S. has left the, has in many ways pulled out of Paris and was gone for four years. We're we're, uh, a natural global leader. The Biden administration, having made uh, climate change a cornerstone and in many ways moved that into almost every part of the cabinet in a, in a substantive way is pushing back on that. And is, so you're, I think you're going to see a bit of, uh, a bit of jockeying for global leadership in this area. Uh, the U S is not willing to just kind of abide by uh, what China has laid out uh, that it is a global leader on this. And one of the areas you're perhaps seeing is that in the latest five-year plan, China did not, tie itself down on what would be peak year for coal and uh, its own targets on uh, when it would stop building new coal-fired power plants, this sort of thing. So uh, I think there's going to be more push to put your money where your mouth is. On some of the other issues that you speak of, human rights uh, is, (laughs) you know, good luck with that one, I think. uh, a related issue that we're going to see is much more sparring in the United Nations. I think because President Trump did not like the multilateralism or the whole concept, it's China was it has been able over time to put its people in positions of leadership. And so I think you're going to see a, a lot more um, pushback on that, especially the Chinese, Chinese may have global political power, but they have they pay a fraction of the dues and budgets of the UN compared to the US. So I think you're going to see a bit more of that. And Donyan Chun, you're up. Hi, my question is regarding if any technology issues were discussed at the meeting, since um, it's been kind of playing a big role in a lot of the topics that were covered today from everything from esports activists, like uh, the one from Blizzard who tried to give support to the Hong Kong protest, but Blizzard ended up removing him or for about a year to the most recent still ongoing China and the like Tencent and these technology companies. How do you say it? Uh, issue of can't think of the word today, maybe because it's a Monday, but <laughs> um, the technology being copyright issues i mean oh intellectual property yeah and all that kind of all those issues was that discussed in the meetings today or was there just too much on the plate for both sides to um talk about it so the the purpose of the meeting i think i think uh perhaps the the chinese would have liked to get down in the weeds particularly on issues of tariffs on issues of uh denial of huawei's access to the market 5g um the 
uh, where social media companies go. Uh, the U.S. was very clear that it did not want to get uh, into that level of detail at this point. Um, they, they're not. The U.S. is not ready to really engage on the nitty gritty. Uh, they're they're going to bide more time. One of the areas where I think you have some of the greatest differences among the uh, alliance that the um, that the U.S. Uh, Biden administration is trying to put together is over technology. Uh, they agree generally on intellectual property rights. They tend, I think the coalition tends to agree, be pretty much on the same page when it comes to state subsidies or state-owned enterprises fighting against um, private companies. But the technology issue is, is much more difficult. I think certain uh, allies feel that you should be able to sell certain things to China. Others are much more hardline on that. Um, it, the one hacking certainly was raised at the at the meeting, uh, particularly this uh, giant Microsoft hack that was that's been attributed to um, the Chinese government in the last couple of weeks. Although it happened earlier, it just came to light. Um, but the short answer is no. It really did not. We have a ways to go before we kind of get get to that level. Thank you. And Laura, Sturdivant Dean. Hi. Uh, first off, thank you for, for taking time to chat with us. This is awesome. Um, now, I'd like to, my question kind of brings it home, pun intended for us in Alaska. And um, I love how you talked about with China um, being more conceptual and us being more tactical in nature. That has been a theme in our history, in our foreign relations for a while. Taking that and I would like to uh, hear your thoughts on the future of the Arctic between both nations and our relationships, since that is obviously near and dear to our heart here in Alaska. Thank you. Uh, you know, actually, that's one of the things that I'm talking to people up here, and it's a, it's a it's an area of great interest. And I think the the Chinese have a worldview, perhaps coming out of the Middle Kingdom, the being the center conceptually the center of the world, um, that there's no area where they should not have a voice, a growing voice in. And that, so they have created this kind of near Arctic power concept. I don't know if the Belt and Road, the Belt and Road is a slippery one. It's You cannot find a map uh, in China that has exactly what the Belt and Road is. Um, you kind of have to cobble it together. And in many ways, it's, it's very classic Chinese branding where they take a, a large collection of policies that they already have and put a slap a name on it. So I haven't yet seen the Belt and Road make it to the Arctic, but <laughs> I think it will, it will be a matter of time. Um, I guess the, the, the playbook, not, I'm not hearing this from China, obviously, but the playbook that I'm hearing from talking to experts is that what you do uh, in, in very much probably uh, an echo of the uh, age of imperialism in the 19th century <clears throat> with the British Empire and others is you expand your uh, commercial interests in the area the, through shipping, through perhaps exploration, and then you start to defend your interests perhaps with military assets, and then you take it from there. An interesting thing to watch, I think, in this area is whether to what extent uh, Russia and China will join forces because, you know, nothing near about Russia's claims to being uh, an Arctic power. Um, but these are very, very wary 
frenemies, uh, the two of them. And, um, you know, in many ways, the opening to the West, to the U.S. Uh, by Mao was a response to needing to balance and recalibrate their relationship with Russia or Soviet Union at that time. So um, so I think that's a close one to watch. Uh, if they're both feeling threatened enough by the U.S. that you could see uh, some close level of cooperation there, all else being equal, they, there is there are big differences between the two. So. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Mark, for, for watching that closely. It's something here in Alaska that we do watch very closely. We know that President Xi Jinping in 2018 announced his plans to extend it through the Arctic something that we think about a lot and appreciate more eyeballs from people like you. So, so thank you very much. And thank you for joining us, everyone here today at the Alaska World Affairs Council and for supporting our commitment to bringing quality educational programs to you and our passion to increase all of our global competency. A warm thank you to our featured speaker, Mr. Mark Manier, and a special introduction by President and CEO of World Affairs Council of America, Bill Clifford. We look forward to seeing everyone again soon. Thank you, everyone. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media, FM 91.1. We just heard a discussion from the Alaska World Affairs Council on understanding the recent U.S.-China meeting that took place last month in Anchorage. Since we still have some time in the hour, let's keep the discussion on Asia. In this Alaska World Affairs Council discussion, we'll learn about Alaska's relationship with South Korea. This was recorded December 4th, 2020. Greg Wolf speaks first. With that, uh, we've asked our first panelist to sort of give us the big picture uh, sort of uh, talk about the geopolitical relationship between the United States and Korea, sort of the state of the state of our relationship. And we're very pleased to have Angela Kerwin. She's the director of Korean Affairs, which resides within the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs in the U.S. Department of State. So with no further ado, please welcome Angela Kerwin. Uh, well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks to the Alaska World Affairs Council. So it, within the State Department, uh, my job is to work on uh, primarily uh, South Korea, North Korea issues, the whole Korea Peninsula. Um, this topic today will focus mostly on uh, what's what's happening in South Korea, although, quite frankly, uh, the United States um, and South Korea constantly work together to deal with any threats that North Korea has. That's always a question we'll get, and uh, I have to tell you that the, the South Korea and the United States governments are very, very closely aligned on all issues regarding North Korea. Um, I said uh, earlier today when I spoke to a smaller group that, don't worry, there's nothing to see here. Nothing's happening in Washington right now. It's a pretty boring place. Nothing going on. Um, so we are in the, in the midst of a transition, and officially that transition started about a week, week and a half ago. And what that means is that we are in the process within the State Department, no matter what country you work on, uh, getting together the information that lays out policy priorities so that the new administration has that from the old administration. In the case of the United States and Korea, this is a nice, easy process because it doesn't matter what administration is in charge. We are allies. We are uh, incredibly close partners. Um, we've worked together for decades, 70 years that uh, we've been side by side and uh, started in, in, in the war, in the Korean War, the Korean conflict, but has grown into a much more robust uh, and productive relationship that is not just based on security issues. It's based on a whole host of issues. Um, and they can be anything from uh, environmental issues, health issues, uh, economic issues, um, our ties for people to people. An example that I've been giving uh, recently, I think, is 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 very important because of the situation we find ourselves in. 
you know, we, we were all supposed to actually be in Alaska today, which would have been a heck of a lot of fun for somebody who's never been there. Uh, but we're virtual because of the COVID pandemic. And South Korea and, and the United States have, have worked closely together on this since the very beginning. In fact, our CDC uh, works very closely with the Korean CDC. And the Koreans were the, um, the first to do some of the trials with remdesivir, one of the treatment options for, for COVID. And the United States was able to work with them to use the data produced uh, by Korea to ensure that we could do that same sort of thing here. That would not have been possible had we not had good relationships at all levels and in all areas with Korea um, prior to coming into a pandemic. You don't get to establish these when something bad happens. You have to have them well established in advance. And that's exactly what we have with Korea. And like I said, the health area in COVID is just a, an example. We have a tight uh, economic relationship, um, in particular with uh, Alaska. Um, you export more to Korea than any other country. So I'm sure that you all probably, those of you uh, that are joining us on this call from Alaska are probably well aware of that. Uh, Korea is about the 10th largest economy in the world right now. Um, it is, uh, it, it trades uh, with, with China as its biggest trading partner, but the United States is the second largest trading partner. And with um, the United States, Korea has had an awful lot of what we call foreign direct investment. In other words, there are Hyundai plants in, in Georgia. There are uh, Samsung plants in Texas. Um, there are all sorts of Korean uh, uh, goods uh, produced in plants in the United States. And those plants in the United States employ U.S. citizens. We like that. In addition to uh, the, our back and forth with, uh, with, with Korea on kind of bilateral relations, whether that's security, because we do worry about the threat of North Korea and we do have 28,000 plus troops in Korea, but whether security, economy, whatever happens to be health, we also uh, are expanding our relationship um, to look regionally. And right now, one of the things that we have been focusing on is a coordination between the United States Indo-Pacific strategy and Korea's new Southern policy. And what that is, is, is looking at the Pacific as a whole, particularly countries, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Philippines, Indonesia, that whole area of the Pacific, kind of the ASEAN area of the Pacific. And how can we coordinate our efforts um, to ensure that we aren't, uh, that we aren't spending the same resources on the same thing, that we're making sure that we're complementing each other and we've been doing this um, for for quite some time, but we've gotten we've gotten better at it. Uh, and an example I gave earlier is um, why would both Korea and the United States say, "Hey, let's help build a, a police training academy in in Cambodia"? Um, no, one of us should build the academy, one of us should provide the trainers. We've got to figure out a way to complement each other rather than building two academies, something like that. So we've been doing that uh, throughout the um, Indo-Pacific region. Uh, with the Koreans, you know, partnering up with them to the extent that we can do so. Um, I, I do uh, think that I should mention uh, just uh, briefly one of the other things as the U.S. government uh, that we work on and we talk to Korea about is um, the relationship between Japan and Korea, which is not the greatest, but they are our two best allies in that part of the world, uh, no doubt about it. And the reason why they're our allies is because we share so many things in common, democracy, transparency, openness, rule of law, all of those um, uh, positives that we would like to see projected around the world. Uh, so we um, encourage our friends on both the Korean Peninsula in South Korea and in Japan to uh, work out their differences. And we understand the historical background that surrounds those differences. It's not particularly easy. 
Um, but when there are other threats in the world that 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 threaten democracy and that threaten transparency, threaten openness, and threaten rule of law, um, then those of us that espouse those values and traditions um, need to band together and stick together to a certain extent. Why don't I uh, drop off there? So thank you. Okay, thank you, thank you, Angela. Um, I guess uh, just two follow-up questions, or very short ones. Some of people in our the Alaskan audience under they may remember that Alaska and Hawaii took a leading role in encouraging our government to allow Korea into the visa waiver program. We were active in the mid to late 90s and up into the early 2000s on this effort. The congressional delegation from Alaska and the congressional delegation from Hawaii were both very involved in that process. How that's I think it, it was formally established. Were they did they enter in 2008 or something like that? And how's it going? The visa waiver program that allows Koreans to come here without a visa. Well, uh, thanks for that question. Directly before serving in the current job that I'm in, I was the consul general in the embassy in Seoul. So I did consular work. And mm -hmm. uh, while I was there, we celebrated um, the 10th anniversary of the visa waiver pro program. So we are now at 12 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Alaska deserves to be applauded, the congressional delegation and anybody else in Alaska that pushed for it, as well as our friends from Hawaii and around the, around the U.S. It is, I think, been a rousing success. Um, one of when we talk about immigration matters, when we talk about visa free travel, um, it resides in, in two areas of the U.S. government. The visas, of course, are generally visas are produced by the State Department. Um, but whether or not you're allowed into the country is Department of Homeland Security. Um, and the Department of Homeland Security tracks uh, the use of uh, visas and tracks the entry of those that travel without visas. Korea has. Um, there, there are 39 countries around the world that are allowed to travel without visas. Korea has one of the absolute lowest misuse rate. In other words, the Koreans use their visa-free travel appropriately and in accordance with U.S. law. They're great travelers. We'd love to have them. Um, if you're going to come to my country and spend your money here, I'll take it. <laughs> Uh, and I'll encourage them to go to Alaska, although I'm not going to tell them it's 12 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then one, one follow-up, it, it deserves much more time, but uh, you mentioned the 28,000 U.S. troops that uh, are, are in Korea, uh, probably in and around the DMZ, the 38th parallel, providing security there in partnership with, uh, with the Korean military. There was talk during the, the, the current administration, uh, I don't know if it ever happened, of, of reducing the number of troops, uh, not just in Korea, but in other countries like Japan and Germany, has that taken place? Uh, and if you can look forward, if it's possible, uh, w do you see any change under the new administration in terms of troop levels? It has stayed pretty steady at 20, it's about 28.5. And, you know, obviously that goes up and down a little bit, depending on who's rotating in and who's rotating out and so forth. It stayed fairly steady, at least for the past four to five years. It could be longer than that, but that, they're, they're the ones I know off the top of my head. The bigger issue is within the Department of Defense as to whether or not uh, troop deployments around the world are going to change. And there have been some proposals made by the Department of De Defense to do so. Uh, and in some locations, which have been highly publicized in right now, I think are limited to wartime areas, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, there have been reductions in overall number of forces deployed in those particular areas. Um, I, uh, I have no inside information on what the new administration may do. Um, so I, it would be, it would be dangerous for me to try to speculate. Um, but what I can tell you is that we have had a constant presence on the Korean peninsula, uh, since 1950. 
Um, there is no doubt that that presence will continue and it will continue in a military, some sort of military presence because we are military allies who have a treaty that require that presence. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Now let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about the economic relationship between the U.S. and Korea and a little bit about that relationship, uh, of course, includes uh, our, our humble state, Alaska. And here to talk about that is Kyle Ferrer. He is the fellow at the Korean Economic Institute. He's also Director of Academic Affairs. So let's please welcome Kyle Ferrer uh, to the podium and to talk about the economic ties, which are substantial between uh, the U.S., Korea, and also Alaska and Korea. Kyle? Thanks so much, Greg, and uh, thanks so much to the Alaska World Affairs Council that have uh, played a role in in, in helping organize today's event. so I, I will, as Greg said, talk a little bit about the economic side, but also want to talk a little bit about uh, just Alaska, Korea uh, relations a bit more generally and touch on some of the points that Angela had brought up. I don't know if it's a step up, but I will certainly uh, uh, expand upon some of the points that she uh, had briefly mentioned in her uh, very comprehensive overview of the U.S.-Korea relationship. Uh, but Alaska and Korea uh, in 1985, it started really, uh, 1985 was a milestone in the relationship. Alaska was the first American uh, state to open up a trade office in Seoul. And in 2008, Korea, the Korean Consular Affairs Office, uh, opened up in Anchorage. And over the course of the, the latter half of the last century, uh, Korea, there was a, a jump in Korea, in Korean immigration uh, to, uh, to Alaska. Uh, so that today there are about 10,000 Koreans living in Alaska, with about 6,700 of them being U.S. citizens or permanent residents. So there is a, a history of a strong people-to-people ties and economic relations, even before uh, the U.S.-Korea uh, signed a free trade agreement uh, that took uh, went into effect in, in 2012. And that was also another milestone year for uh, the U.S.-Korea economic relationship and, of course, Alaska is one of the a, a key beneficiary of that uh, trade agreement. Um, so overall for the U.S., uh, since 2012, when it went into force, uh, you, annual U.S. exports to Korea have gone up by about uh, $20 billion. Uh, but Alaska uh, is, a, uh, is a key beneficiary, as I mentioned. Uh, Alaskan exports to, Alaskan exports to South Korea last year were about $1.1 billion dollars, constituting 21.7% of Alaska's total export um, share, which put uh, Alaska, which put Korea as the the number one export destination for Alaskan goods. Uh, and among those, um, sent among the the top exports to Korea are fish and frozen uh, marine products, mineral and ores, and oil and gas. Those three areas combined constitute about 98% of uh, the exports. Uh, and there's also good news too in that regard. Uh, while oil and gas and mineral and ores, there uh, most of those didn't have um, tariffs on them even before Corus FTA. Uh, with the Corus FTA coming into force 2012, uh, any of the remaining tariffs on on uh, marine products have gradually gone down. They've either by now they've either been completely eliminated, or uh, if you look at the tariff scheduler that the that the uh, Commerce Bureau has online, it looks as if uh, pretty much all of the marine products uh, that Alaskans send to uh, Korea uh, will have zero tariffs starting next year. I think there are very minimal tariffs left 
but those will be completely eradicated um, by by next year, which is more good news as we look for uh, post-COVID uh, recovery. But uh, outside of good exports, the exports themselves provide up to around 3,500 jobs in Alaska. And the Korean students studying at universities in Alaska contribute about a million dollars per year to the local economy. Uh, and tourism brings in about $20 million a year from, from Korea. Uh, at least, again, these numbers are all pre, uh, pre-pandemic, uh, but still it's a very robust uh, relationship. Um, and beyond that, uh, if you want to drill down to some of the success stories, you know, we hear a lot about uh, fish and oil and gas. Uh, those are the main um, exports to Korea, uh, but there are success stories outside of that. Uh, for example, uh, Korean uh, ex- Alaskan exports in communication equipment to Korea have increased from somewhere around two hundred thousand dollars to over two million uh, since the U.S. U.S. Korea Free Trade Agreement went into effect, uh, and then a whole litany of other uh, uh, other businesses have been able to benefit from uh, the trade agreement, including. Uh, Alaska Glacier Products, which sells uh, freshly bottled Alaskan glacier sourced water uh, to Korea. Uh, and I briefly sort of mentioned uh, the, the, diff- the dichotomy between pre-pandemic and the pandemic economy. And I think uh, Korea represents a really important export partner uh, for Alaska, at least it should, uh, after the pandemic, because Korea has done a really commendable job in recovering from it. And a large part of that has to do with uh, the way that the the Korean government has handled the pandemic uh, in South Korea right now, as a result of its ability to handle uh, uh, COVID, is econo- the, the economic projections are looking very good. Um, among all the OECD OECD members, South Korea is expected to have the lowest con- contraction in GDP uh, this year. Uh, so it'll be it's an avid consumer market. Uh, and so if uh, uh, they are able to um, meet the projections, I'm sure they'll be an even more important partner for Alaska uh, coming out of the pandemic because they're probably going to be uh, one of the most quickly, one of the economies that are able to most quickly recover from what we're currently experiencing. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. You just heard discussions from the Alaska World Affairs Council. For more shows like this, head to alaskapublic.org or download our mobile app. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks for listening. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.